For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Slightly muted, thanks be to God, I thought. Slightly kind of breathe, oh boy, and then you think, if I say oh boy, I've got to face it, you think I'd better say oh girl as well, and it's all fraught with danger. Let's pray. Father, as we look into the uh, darkness of our own hearts in these next few minutes, I pray that we might face reality, but also that we might see through the darkness to the life and beauty of the gospel. And I pray particularly for those of us here this evening who are burdened by guilt or perhaps confused about all sorts of things in the whole uh, world of ethics. And I pray that the glorious light of the gospel would shine into our hearts. And I also pray that anything that I might say in my humanity that causes offense that comes from me and not from you, that people might understand that and forgive me and be able to walk freely before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, keep Romans 1 uh, open in front of you and let's plunge in. In order to be rescued one must first recognize the need to be rescued. As some of you know, my most vivid experience of rescue is a story that I often repeat of my 12-year-old son, as he was then, and I being pulled from the Bay of Biscay, uh, not sadly by Pamela Anderson, but by a big, hairy Frenchman. We were in serious strife, 
having been caught in a rip current, and we needed no one to point out to us that we needed to be rescued, and we certainly did not resist the rescuer. But it's not so obvious in the spiritual realm, is it? Certainly, through all of my teenage years, it did not occur to me that I needed God to rescue me from sin and death. After all, I was English. We all, if you're an overseas visitor, perhaps you don't realize this yet, but all English people believe that God is an Englishman. I went to church pretty much most weeks, at school every day at least once. I was a half-decent sort of lad. I liked, my, I liked cricket and loved my mother. And, of course, I even had a double-barreled name, which is an enormous advantage. <laughs> so what else could I be but a Christian? And I assumed as a teenager that it would be a good day for God when I got to heaven, which, of course, I would immediately walk into by right, because that's the sort of chap I was, if heaven existed, I suppose, and I wasn't sure about that. But then I began, in a serious sort of way, to read the Bible. Of course, I knew the stories already. I was pretty familiar with most of it, from Adam and Eve through to Paul's missionary journeys. And like many of you, I'd drawn the inevitable maps of his, of his journeys in order to secure the easiest O-level, as they were then called, on offer. So easy was Divinity O-level that we took it a year early. But I was shocked to discover, as I read the Bible age 19, that Isaiah called my righteous deeds filthy rags. I was surprised at the ferocity of Jesus' attack on hypocrisy in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew's Gospel. And I felt myself deeply convicted of that sin. I was shocked to read in Romans, Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All sounded horribly like nice church-going son of a vicar, me. I was surprised that all the New Testament writers warned about God's judgment against what they called ungodliness. And I don't recall many preachers at my school warning me about that. And I began the process, therefore, that led to my conversion to Christ by being what I now know to be convicted of sin. Repent and believe the gospel, said Peter in the first Christian sermon. Repent, turn from sin and believe the gospel. There seemed to me more to it than just adding Jesus to my lifestyle. I became aware of the need to be rescued. Now, I mention this because, to be honest, the thought of preaching yet another sermon about homosexuality, which would be easy to do from Romans uh, 1, from these verses, not only fills me with gloom, but probably you as well. But we cannot escape, and you cannot escape, we cannot escape in this generation the plain teaching in Romans 1 that homosexual practice is one of the sure indications for Paul, writing to the Christian community in Rome, that mankind has become utterly lost, depraved, and godless, and urgently needs rescuing. 
We can't escape that plain truth from this chapter. We are studying Leviticus here in the morning. Some of you are coming to that series on Leviticus that we're doing here. And in Leviticus in the Old Testament, we find all sorts of dire warnings about law-breaking, some of which, of course, seem ludicrous today, like not eating fish with scales. I just had a quick look through uh, before the service and picked up another couple of ones which I quite enjoyed. Uh, Not clipping your sideburns was forbidden. And uh, having tattoos, although I think banning tattoos would be quite a good thing, actually. But anyway, there we go. But anyway, those kind of things. Now, frankly, we think some of those things are ludicrous today, although, of course, at the time, they were quite sensible for preserving the health of a desert people. But the New Testament, when we look at the laws that are extremely important today, we need to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And the New Testament does not hold back on the sins that really matter for us living now in uh, this era after the cross of Christ. And there's no doubt that the New Testament certainly does not hold back on the importance of our sexual proclivities. But don't think that it's only sex that's the problem. Let me read again those appalling verses, really, 28 to 32. I mean, this this is one of the most extraordinary bits of the New Testament. Start at 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Not many of those are about sex. Tom Wright, in his excellent little book, uh, Paul, his Paul for Everyone series, comments on these verses here like this, and I quote Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham. When I translated the list of human failings set out in this passage, I had a strange sense of recognition. I know these people, I thought. I read about them in the newspaper, and sometimes I meet them in the street. But that is not the most worrying thing. The most alarming thing is that sometimes I see a person like that, not out in the street, but in the mirror. And I think this must be our starting point for any discussion and preaching about sin. It is easy for us in this chapter to look at homosexual practice and say that's what it's all about. But if we're honest and look at the chapter as a whole and look in the mirror, we find that we are all in this together. So we should beware lest we make the mistake of casting the first stone. So what are we to make of all this? Well, three points I want to make from the passage. First, what is the starting point of sin? Secondly, I want to look at the sin spiral, and with a bit of a wander just for a moment into the specific situation in relation to homosexuality and why Paul majors on it here. And thirdly, the solution to sin, though much of that, of course, in the weeks to come. So first, the starting point of sin. I think if you ask most people who are really caught up in an obviously wicked life, I mean rapists or habitual thieves or violent thugs, wildly promiscuous, for instance, if you ask them where they lost their way, how they got into this situation, many of them would start by talking about 
what has been done to them. They would often have a victim mentality, and often understandably so. It would almost certainly not be their fault. But then they would talk about the attractiveness of sin. And let's face it, sin is fun often. And for a while, it is often fun at least. It sometimes pulls after a while. Uh, Paul takes a different view to that being the starting point of sin, that it is fun or that it is the result of being a victim. He says that the starting point of sin is suppression of the truth. Do you see that in verse 18? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness of wicked men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, he seems to have in, his, in the back of his mind throughout this passage the story of the Garden of Eden from Genesis 1 to 3. And it's helped for us, I think, to recognize that he is thinking in terms of uh, Genesis 1 to 3 as he writes the letter. Did God say, is the voice that whispers in Eve's ear. Did God really say? It's a voice that suppressed the truth. The truth that God did actually say. Thou shalt not eat of that tree. Did God say? Did God really mean that? Did God speak the truth? Did he really say that? Is that really what the Bible means? Is that really relevant today? We were created to know, love, worship, and serve the Creator God. Genesis 1 to 3 teaches us that we are His viceroys in the world, created in His image, uniquely created in His image, men and women created in His image. To know this and to live by it, according to the Bible, is the way to healthy and fruitful human living. And in society after society, all through history, it is obvious that you human beings have not lost this, this desire to worship alone amongst the animal kingdom. Human beings worship. But as Paul says here so clearly, we suppress the truth about God for an inferior substitute, what is called, of course, throughout the Old Testament, an idol. The great sin of the people of Israel was idolatry. Now, perhaps in our North Oxford sophistication, we laugh now at the thought of of worshipping man-made carvings uh, or or images like the golden calf in Exodus. But we happily bow down, do we not, at the altars of money, sex, power, intellectual attainment, social position, fashion, appearance, popularity... What's your poison? It's really important for us to get clear that the starting point of sin is not our behavior, which is so often how we manage to communicate it to the world, that somehow we're always trying to be moralizing. For Paul, the starting point of sin is not behavior, but our rejection and our rebellion against God. This is important because it's going to affect our attitude to sinners. You see, we might be disgusted by the rapist or the wife-beater or the homosexually immoral or the paedophile, which no doubt we have been uh, this week. But we should be careful. We must resist this self-righteous phobia, which can so quickly become hypocrisy. 
for Paul, these things, wicked and appalling as they seem to us, are the inevitable result of the exchanging of worship of the Creator for worship of what He has created. That is the starting point of sin, which leads me to what I've called the sin spiral. Look at verse uh, 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Rejection of God, even though we had a predisposition towards Him, what he calls knowing him here, the instinct that men and women have somehow to worship something. Uh, Even though we knew God or had a sense that there was something out there, we reject it. And that is followed by futile thinking, darkened hearts, and then behavior, interestingly, which really can barely be distinguished from animals much to the light, of course, of atheistic Darwinians who say we aren't anything really other than animals anyway. And as sin grips us, that is what we so quickly become, ruled not by the Lord Jesus but by our appetites. Think about this um, futile thinking for a moment. How much human thinking and creativity is futile? Much is very creative, of course. Much is very constructive. But think of all the thinking and planning that went into, say, creating the gas chambers in Nazi Germany. Or think of the genius of Nick Leeson defrauding his bank of millions a few years ago. Or think of Mr. Madoff and the thinking and cleverness that went into his scheme as he made off with all that money in the States last year. Darkened thinking. But also think about what you think about. What have you thought about today? How much of what I have thought about is futile? Oh, that the human race could use its God-given ability to think in the way that God intended. Paul puts it best in in Philippians chapter 4, beautiful passage, which really fits into this context. Philippians 4 verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. How much of those things have you thought about today? What is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy? Think about those things. Our thinking becomes futile. What about darkened hearts? The heart is the place of motivation, the place from which love is to emanate. But instead, so often, we're motivated by selfishness, by hatred, by jealousy, by fear. In the darkness, we get lost and confused. Some people, in their confusion, believe that the compassionate thing to do, and they genuinely believe it, is to legalize assisted suicide. Others think that is the height of folly. One says renew trident, and another says scrap trident. We both claim to be wise, but we both can't be right. One of the options must be folly. In one culture, something is right, and another, it is wrong. We deceive ourselves 
according to what we think will preserve our interests. Our hearts are darkened. And gradually, as the image of God in us is tarnished by rebellion against God, by godless thinking and darkened hearts, human behavior descends in this spiral into the animalistic. We are ruled not by our righteous, loving God any longer, but by those appetites I mentioned earlier. And how varied those appetites turn out to be, as every reading of every daily newspaper will tell us. Now, Paul here as he thinks about this, majors on homosexuality. And here's my digression for a moment into that. And he majors on homosexuality because he's got Genesis 1 to 3 in his mind. He's thinking about what God created the human race for. Why did God create human beings in his image at all? And he created men and women to multiply and rule the world under his authority. In Roman society, in particular, this was known to Paul, and as a Jew would have probably horrified him particularly, Roman society, in Rome itself, the center of the Roman Empire, homosexuality was both common and acceptable. The Emperor Nero was openly in a gay relationship. It wouldn't have been called gay in Latin. But it was what in, although apparently he, he batted both ways around as well. But anyway, he, he was known to be in homosexual relationships. By definition, as Paul thought about this, homosexual activity is non-procreative and therefore frustrates God's creative purpose in the world. He created men and women to be together and to be fruitful together. The biology of it seems to work most of the time. Tom Wright, in this book, which I found particularly helpful in preparing this sermon, Tom Wright, rather riskily to my mind, uses the analogy of a violin and a bow. He says, if you just found one lying in the street, you wouldn't know really what to do with it. They are made for one another. You cannot make music unless you have both the violin and the bow. The illustration is dangerous, as Tom acknowledges, because, of course, there is much more to a man and a woman uh, than simply what they are together. And, of course, a man can be complete without a woman and vice versa, as indeed Jesus was. But the illustration illustration catches something, I think, of the Creator's intention and explains why the Bible is so strong, particularly against homosexual practice, which is very non-PC today, of course. It is awkward for us uh, that Paul takes homosexuality as the example of the corruption of human life. He does so uh, because it was so well known in Rome. And it's awkward for us today, in a way, that this has become the great presenting issue in the ecclesiastical controversy that rages around us. It means that those of us who long to be known as advocates of God's just and loving rule, those of us who passionately believe that the Bible shows us the way to wholesome thinking and right-directed hearts are easily dismissed as homophobic, unloving, sub-Christian bigots. But can we get this clear? You see, Paul is not in the business here of passing judgment. That's not what he's doing here. He's not passing judgment on individuals. He's observing human society. He's not saying 
that everyone who feels sexually attracted to the opposite sex is lost in, the, in idolatry to sex. Nor is he saying that everyone engaged in homosexual activity, activity has deliberately and intentionally rejected the, homo, the heterosexual option. He's not saying things like that. And we must be careful not to say that too. No, his point is not about specific individuals who do these things which we might think um, appalling, even revolting. But he's talking about the human race as a whole, which is guilty of twisting idolatry, resulting amongst other things in a distortion of our sexuality. He's looking at the whole thing. He said, do you see what's happened? Do you see why you need to be rescued? Look around you at how far you've gone from what God intended when he created men and women, as described in Genesis 1 to 3. Do you see how bad the situation has become? And we shouldn't doubt this this week. I mean, I've been on holiday, so I've only been catching uh, news bulletins. But how can we not be appalled at the horrendous stories that have emanated uh, from Bristol Crown Court? as we've seen that a, nursery, a trusted nursery school teacher can be lured in depravity into the sexual abuse of infants and the use of that on the internet. How much more evidence do we need for the depravity, the potential depravity into which we can all descend than is shouting at us from the newspapers? And Paul is not saying much more than page three of the, the Times or the Daily Telegraph this week. That is the society in which you live, and you need rescuing from it. In the context of Genesis 1 to 3, and because of its prevalence and its advocacy in Roman society, homosexuality had become the particular issue then, as it is today. For Paul, it was something that needed spelling out. And I have a horrible feeling, whatever it costs us, it needs to be spelt out still today. But the church must hold out its hand in love. Compassion, restoration, forgiveness to all sinners, not least those who have indulged in homosexual practices. That is what the Christian should be offering, not homophobic prejudice. But Romans 1 does not allow us to say that what God has called sin is not sin, whether that be gossip or homosexual practice and all the other things in the list. Let us be clear as Christians that we recognize what sin is in our own lives and in others and are honest and straight about it. Perhaps I've used the wrong word. So what is the solution to sin? What is the solution to sin? Well, of course, that is the subject of the whole letter uh, to Romans, and mercifully, it will be um, the main thrust of what we're talking about from now on. This is a good news letter. This is a good news letter, not a bad news letter. And we begin to learn the secret of finding our way back to where we should be out of our human depravity, which we're all caught up in, in chapter 4, when Paul talks about the impact on Abraham of his faith. And he's going to talk about that a great deal in Romans chapter 4. He was strengthened in his, his faith, writes Paul, and was once again able to give glory to God. As he believed in God, 
and set out in obedience to God's call on his life. So once again, he began, as Adam and Eve were intended to in the garden, to give glory to God once again. And as I know you and get to know you, I know that is precisely what so many of you are doing. As you live by faith, so you begin to bring glory to God again in your lives. You are all doing it as you trust in Christ in one degree or another. And it's glorious to see. It is glorious to see. That belief in Abraham was credited to him as righteousness, and it is credited to you and me as righteousness too. The terrible impact on our lives of sin, be it gossip or be it disobedience to parents or be it lying or all the other things in this list, and you will be spoken to by God about your own life, as I have been as I prepared this sermon, or be it sexual perversion itself, the out of jointedness that we experience because of sin is remedied, and we know that it's true in our experience as we walk the Christian walk, it is remedied as we put our trust again in the Creator God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We see this in great saints. As I said, I was on holiday this week, and on Friday morning I received a phone call at uh, 7.45 in the morning from Tom Houston, a dear uh, friend uh, in this church, great preacher of the gospel, great Christian man, who for the last year and a half or so has been nursing his wife Hazel as she has been terminally ill. And he rang me on Friday morning, on 7.45 in the morning, to tell me that Hazel had just died. Some of you may not have heard that. And uh, that's a sad and... uh, end of a glorious partnership that Tom and Hazel have had together. It's a truly God-giving glory relationship that they've had all through their lives. And tearfully on the phone, Tom said to me, do you know what Hazel's last words to me were just before she died? She said, Tom, I'm in my father's arms. I'm in my father's arms. Do you see how her life of faith has repaired the disjointedness of sin? So that when she comes to the great journey through death, she is back with her creator God, walking in the Garden of Eden again. That is what faith does. That is what faith does. It restores the relationship with God. So there's our solution. Turn away right now, tonight, from the idols that have replaced the living God at the center of your life. Have done with them. Put your trust afresh in the Lord Jesus, who on the lonely cross took the punishment that a truly just and loving and merciful God had to inflict on our wickedness, which we must take seriously as he did. Paul says at the climax of this part of his letter, which we'll come to at the carol services uh, and the week before the carol services, just before Christmas, he says this, There is and there never will be any condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. For nothing, nothing, not even the list of dreadful iniquities here at the end of chapter 1, nothing can separate the true believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter what you have done, be it homosexual practice or gossip or all stations in between. There is forgiveness There is new life to be found in Jesus. Grasp it, and having grasped it, do all you can 
to hang on to it. Let us pray. In a moment, we're going to use some uh, familiar words to confess our sins together. Just now, in the, in the silence of a few moments, we're just going to hold silence for a, a minute or two, perhaps, and reflect on what God's, what, what in your muddled or confused thinking, what in mine, what in my darkened heart, most needs God's forgiveness what, have, what idol have I created rather than the worship of the true God? And let's turn away. Let's turn away and have done with it now. So that like Hazel, when we come to the end of the journey, we will know that we are in our Father's arms. Let's keep silence and ask for God's forgiveness. <laughs>